Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Hi, everybody. Now, Welcome Amanda- back. Welcome back, everyone. Sorry, now, I was, Amanda. <laughs> I was just going to get straight in there, wasn't I? Sorry, Mark. Yeah, Amanda. No pleasantries. Amanda L on Patreon suggested this week's case to us, and I'm really, really glad that she did because I love a case with some historical significance. And this one has two key elements to it. So one is that we're going to be hearing about the first ever serial killer from Wales. 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 Bethan. Bethan. And the second element is the way that the killer was caught. But I'm not going to give that away. I don't want to give that part away early. Um, So you're going to have to wait and find out what that was. But Mark, there are no cats involved, I promise. Thank fuck for that. I just wanted to say, if um, if people haven't listened to Mike's interview of us on his show, Murder Mile uh, UK podcast, uh, whatever it's called, uh, do head over to, what's it called? Murder Mile UK True Crime Podcast. It's just do called Murder Mile, I it. think. Whatever. Um, head over to it and listen. It's in his most recent-ish episode. <laughs> I'm not very prepared for this. Uh, but it's uh, he puts the interview in during the middle of that episode, and it was a really fun interview that we did with him. Uh, so do check it out. If you want something a bit more lighthearted, if you want to know a bit more about me and Bethan and our plans in the true crime sphere, and they're not the plans you might think they are. They are no. us committing crimes. So It was a really, really good interview, actually, because I'd gone all prepared with very serious questions questions and really like as if I was some investigative journalist and then huh. Mike just completely surprised us and yeah it was good fun though wasn't it it was just what we needed after about four hours of recording yeah mm-hmm. uh, should we thank our most recent patreon supporters oh that sounds like a good idea thank you everybody Mark you've got the list haven't you I do. I've written it in massive uh, red writing on a, a works pad. Hopefully they won't mind. Uh, so that is Crystal James, Gemma Upton, Tracy Crossfield, Alison Neary and the amazing Holly Jane Shears, who has increased her pledge and become an annual subscriber. Uh, Holly does our theme tune and she's uh, she does some great uh composing and arranging so uh check out her details in our show notes and also alison gurdievsky who's increased her pledge and gone annual as well uh so thank you to each and every one of you and to all of our existing well, yeah. supporters thank you. If you would like to join these guys and to, and support us and the show, it's massively appreciated. We've got loads of bonus content over there. I think we've got 36, 35 or 36 full bonus episodes that haven't been released on the main channel. And of course, we've got our other podcast, Crime Wave, where we talk about topical true crime stories making the news. So yeah, if you want a, a little bit uh, more from us, then do head over there and, and your support is massively appreciated. This week's case begins in Wales in 1973 and with 16-year-old Sandra Newton. After a night out with her friends in Britton Ferry, a town in the county of Neath Port Talbot, Sandra was trying to hitch a ride home back to Kimla, which is high up on a hill in the town of Neath. So it's about a 15-minute drive away from where she and her friends had been clubbing. She had been seen with her friends at a nightclub that night, Saturday the 14th of July, 1973, And she had left with her boyfriend, but he was a secret boyfriend because, naughty boy, he was married. Well, I'm glad glad you said naughty boy rather than naughty girl because she's done nothing wrong. It's him, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So she was seen out. She 
left with her boyfriend, but she didn't make it home. Now, the pair had gone away from the nightclub at the end of the night and had what the boyfriend described as a quickie in the back of an abandoned van. Nice and classy. Oh, lucky her. How lovely for Sandra. Mm Mm-hmm. Being treated like a queen. Treated like a queen. He then left Sandra at the roadside and walked home in the opposite direction. God, I mean, women really were treated like shit back in the 70s, weren't they? This guy's taken it to a whole new level. Isn't that crazy? Like, you just wouldn't expect it nowadays, would you? No, a quickie in the back of the van and then off you fuck. I'm driving home to the wife. Lovely. I'm also pretty sure it wasn't even his van because all of the reports describe it as an abandoned van and I think it was just a random van they came across. Oh, nice. Sandra was found dead three days later in the entrance of a culvert beneath a mountain roadway near to a coal mine in Tonmore, which is a rural location some sort of six miles or so from where she'd been partying in Britain Ferry. The town of Tonmore is just two miles from Kimla and it was suspected that Sandra had thought she'd gotten the lift she'd hoped for but had then instead been abducted and taken to this remote location. Sandra had been raped and then choked to death with her own skirt. There was not much of an attempt made to hide her body and due to the area she was found in, police believed that her killer was a local man. So the idea of this young girl hitchhiking obviously feels really alien to us in 2022. Like I can't imagine anyone hitchhiking around the UK nowadays, but it was the 70s and I guess it was reasonably commonplace. And I think also with this, it's um, it's after a night out, isn't it? So it's dark. Um, I, I just think it's so much worse to be hitchhiking in the dark because where I live, I'm, I'm near uh, sort of a route in and out of Bristol and onto the motorway network. And I do still see hitchhikers. It's usually men and I've only ever seen them in the daytime. Um, Mm. But I do still see them. That's the only only ones I've ever seen, but it's so rare now. Are you ever tempted to pick anybody up? Yeah, I am. I really am. Um, Because really, genuinely, they're just hard on their luck and want to help to get somewhere to save some train ticket. But... I'm all for it. I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I suppose I'm fearful of them. Mm-hmm. So they've got nothing well, yeah, to be absolutely. fearful of me. I might bore the arse off them for 20 minutes, <laughs> but that's, that's the only thing they need to be scared about with me. But I'm always a bit scared. Is this some kind of con that, you know, they're the criminal and they want to get into my car and then abduct me or steal the car? Well, there's that joke, the isn't there? Like, um, oh, the guy I picks know up the a hitchhiker one. and says how do you know I'm not a serial killer? And he's like, well, what are the chances of two of us being in one car? And it's, but it is actually kind of a bit of a worry. Like, what are they getting in your car? Are they going to rob you? So. Yeah. And it's, it's highly unlikely, but, um, Mm -hmm. and I always want to do a good deed, but it's just, no, I'm not risking it. And I certainly wouldn't hitchhike myself. No, I would not. And one article I read kind of put it into perspective because it explained how there were no buses at 1am when people left nightclubs and, Very few people had cars at this point as well, especially the young people going out clubbing. And it basically explained how a wage for a woman who was a standard factory worker was about £16 a week. A taxi home would have cost about £4. So of course everyone's going to hitchhike. You've already spent some of your, you know, a decent chunk of money on going out. £4 is a quarter of your week's wages um, and also the thought of a sexual killer or a serial killer was probably not something anybody, I'm going to ha- hazard a guess, really knew about or worried about in this part of Wales at this time. 
No, I, I was going to say it's quite rural, isn't it? I can never it say was, that yeah. word. Rural. Um, and it, it's more normal, I think, then. You, you'll know people in that community and, and people will offer lifts. And this is 50 years ago. So, yeah, it was very different anyway. And whilst today the idea of a boyfriend leaving his 16-year-old girlfriend on the side of the road to hitchhike home after they have a quickie in the back of an abandoned van is totally ridiculous to us, not least since then he went back to his wife... It must not have been too shocking at the time because this wasn't even like a big part of the story. It was kind of just like the police knew that it was a bit of a naughty situation so they didn't make a big deal of it. Sandra would surely have been pleased to see someone stop to pick her up but the fear and dread she must have felt as the car passed the familiar surroundings and carried on to this remote location that would then be her final resting place just chills me to my bones that poor girl... You can just imagine at what point did she realise what was going on? That, that's always what, what bothers me the most. And I know we've covered, I can't remember, but fairly recently in the last few months, we covered something quite similar where there would have been this moment where the victim would have just had that that sudden realisation in that split second of, oh, I'm in grave danger now. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it does, it chills you to the bone to think about it, that awful feeling they would have had in the pit of their stomach as they realised that their life was very possibly going to come to an end or at the very, you know, least that they, they, they were going to get raped. No, it is. It's the absolute stuff of nightmares, isn't it? But as if that story wasn't scary enough, the events surrounding the murders of Geraldine Hughes and Pauline Floyd are somehow even worse. I, it seems impossible, but somehow they are. So Geraldine and Pauline were also 16 years old when, six weeks later, they headed out on a Saturday night out in Swansea. Pauline and Geraldine lived seven miles away in the neighbouring villages of Hlandasi and Skewen. So Bravo. I, thank you very much. So hitchhiking home from the club, the rank, was not unusual. They waited in the spitting rain for a car driver to take pity on them and soon they felt they were quite lucky as someone did pick them up and it was both of them. But the pair didn't make it home. At 10am the following morning, a pensioner came across Pauline's body whilst walking in a wooded copse near Tichlandasi. The copse was a shortcut from the main road to Pauline's house where the friends had planned to spend the night, so it was really close to her home. Pauline was lying face down. She'd been battered about the head and then strangled with a five-foot rope that had been tied around her neck several times. Her clothing was heavily bloodstained and her boots were left beside her lifeless body. Geraldine, it appeared, had escaped the killer initially and had actually run 50 yards away. She was found dead close to the main Jersey Marine Road and sadly, whilst this was busy even at night because it led to the M4, which was quite new, she didn't actually quite get to safety. She was killed and her body was left just yards from the road and I just found that so sad that she was almost at a position where she could have flagged someone down for some help. I, f- I feel worse for Geraldine because it sounds like Pauline's life maybe came to a, a quicker end. And it, of course, it's awful, but there wouldn't have been much time for her to really realise what was happening before uh, she w- faded into unconsciousness. But Geraldine has run for her life. And mm-hmm. yeah, that stood a really strong chance of potentially getting away. And yeah. it just didn't happen. But the hot, can you imagine the terror that she would have been feeling? Exactly. And she too had a head wound and was strangled with a five-foot rope from behind. Now, how the killer kept control of these two girls will never be known. But whilst they were both still fully clothed, 
Post-mortem examinations revealed that they had both been raped, so they'd been made to redress by their killer after being raped, and this was shown by the fact that the feet in, their feet inside their tights was they were dirty from the ground of the cops, so they'd both been raped and then made to redress and then murdered, which I just feel like is they must they must have thought whilst this is horrific it's over. Yeah, they must have thought that's it and and we're going to be able to go. And also, uh, without getting sort of into too much detail, he's going to have raped one of them first, and the other would have most likely witnessed that and known that she would be for the same fate mm-hmm. as her friend, which is, again, just it's harrowing. It's just horrible, isn't it? Yeah. And the murders, I mean, quite understandably, created a huge sense of fear in the community over whether the attacker would strike again. Barbara Williams, who was a close friend of Pauline and Geraldine, later said... There were police, dogs, panda cars, they were going around all the time, everywhere. No one walked the streets. My mother would not let me out of her sight. It could have been the milkman, the postman. Yeah, I get it, because it's, it's a, a rural community. It's likely that it's uh, it's somebody known to the area. And you would, I would be suspecting everybody, the milkman, the postman, etc. Yeah. So there was, of course, this kind of reasonably obvious link between the murders of Geraldine and Pauline and Sandra, who was found for six weeks previously. Um, just as a little aside, in case anybody's wondering, Sandra's boyfriend didn't have a driver's license or a car, and Sandra's body was found quite miles away, so he was cleared of her murder quite early on, um, just in case anyone's wondering if he was kind of up to no good as well nope he was an older boyfriend very naughty went back to his wife but he wasn't the murderer um and the three murders were linked kind of in the media and and within people but not officially i don't think for quite a while but um they were kind of quite clearly linked together so the police set up a murder room in Skewen police station so of course there were no computers at the time so the team relied on a complex manual card index system and something called a graticule so a graticule was a wall-sized whiteboard divided into tiny squares in which individual inquiries or actions were listed and then crossed off when completed how mad is that i don't Can you imagine I don't mind doing that, that nowadays well, it is a mad system, but it just sounds like a massive spreadsheet to me. So it's like a manual version of, of a, yeah. a spreadsheet. So I don't mind it too much. The minute you said sense. this, it, it does, yeah. But the minute you said that the team relied on a complex manual card index system, I was having flashbacks to the the Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah, and they they really, came a cropper. Yeah, really similar in how some things went wrong with this case. To be honest with you. Yeah, just too much information coming in and and no uh, intelligent way to file it, really. Mm -hmm. One of the main things that linked the two cases was that the pair of friends had been picked up in a white Austin 1100 and one such car had been spotted, quote, going like the clappers on the night of Sandra's murder. So detectives attempted to trace any men who owned an Austin 1100 in the area, but this was a really popular model, so they had more than 10,000 drivers to visit and question. And even getting to the point of speaking to them was painstaking work in itself, because cars at this time were registered in local taxation offices. So officers had to go to each office and trawl through the records And then each vehicle owner was visited, asked for a statement, and then their alibi was verified from a statement from someone else. So one of the men interviewed, called Joseph Kappen, explained that he'd been at the Neath Fair 
the night of the murders. This was corroborated by his wife. And when police asked to see his car, it was on bricks with no tyres. So the police had so many of these reports to undertake, write up on the cards and then file. It's just crazy. All of that, just just on that one section, which is the car. And also that car might technically could have had nothing to do with it. It's a good lead. It's it's worth pursuing. But the, what are the odds out of 10,000 people who've got that car? There's going to be some weird and wonderful, suspicious stories that come out of that that actually are from innocent people, but have got to be really followed up on. Well, the only thing with the car is that the, the two girls, Geraldine and Pauline, definitely got into an Austin 1100. It was just that one was spotted at the time around Sandra's that had been mentioned. So they were kind of like, right, this is a really viable link. But I get what you mean, because with Sandra's case, it could have been different. This person could have swapped their car halfway through or anything. Um, The Port Talbot Steelworks employed 13,000 men, all of whom had to be considered as potential suspects. The construction of the nearby M4 motorway plus the nearby Neath Fair meant there were hundreds of itinerant workers that had to be considered. And there was the added difficulty of numerous strangers that these huge events brought to the area. Hundreds of construction workers were questioned and then detectives had to travel the country following up on statements from men who'd been working at the fairground once the Neath Fair finished. So these detectives are having to go all over the UK then at this point. I just can't, I can't even begin to think how long all of this would have taken to to Mm -hmm. question 10,000 drivers and take a statement and then to track down hundreds of construction workers who were building the fucking M4 and these fairground workers traveling all over the country. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's gonna, um, yeah, I think the next bit I'm going to read to you is quite interesting because it does kind of put this into figures. So soon they were described as drowning, which I think we can totally get in the ridiculous amount of reports and information they had. So in the murder room itself, there were soon 35,000 index cards containing names and different subject categories. So the categories were things like a queer person, rumours, psychopaths, psychics, which made me laugh because I can understand like people who are doing strange things, but psychics have obviously got in touch and said, we know what's going on. Um, pregnant women, not really sure why pregnant women was a section, but they had to be in a section, and suspicious acts. So I get the whole, like, rumours and queer person and psychopath and suspicious acts, that makes sense. Obviously, queer person, they mean someone behaving strangely. But yeah, psychics and pregnant women, so they, they're having to pay everything that's been brought into them, they're having to write down. The psychics, the psychics I get, like you said, the pregnant women, it makes me, I don't know, it makes me think... Did they have some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, profiling where they thought that the perpetrator might have a pregnant wife or girlfriend? And maybe I don't that was. I think so, d- but maybe. No. That's a good idea. Who knows? So there were 10,500 potential suspects, albeit from very small links, 10,000 miscellaneous uh, statements, 11,000 car questionnaires, 4,000 statements from Austin car owners that they then felt from the car questionnaires they should interview. Every piece of paper was supposed to be cross-indexed, but the mass of information is overwhelming and some things were totally missed and it's frustrating but understandable. Honestly, Beth, and this sounds like one of my to-do lists. If I'm feeling <laughs> overwhelmed and I've written a to-do list and it's going on oh to like 4,000 pages. Uh, God, this is just crazy, isn't it? It gets worse. A miners' strike forced the British government to implement a three-day working week for everyone across the country. So 
In the 1970s, most of the UK's electricity was produced by coal-burning power stations. To reduce electricity consumption and conserve the coal stocks, the Conservative Prime Minister Edward Heath announced a number of measures under the Fuel and Electricity Control Act 1973, including the three-day work order, which came into force at midnight on the 31st of December. So from the 1st of January 1974, commercial users of electricity were limited to three consecutive days each week to prolong the life of available fuel stocks whilst there were these strikes ongoing. And television broadcasts were shut down at half ten each night, most of the pubs closed, and businesses were prohibited from working longer hours on those three days either, so they were really, really limited. Services that were deemed essential, such as hospitals, supermarkets and newspaper printing presses, were exempt. So that strike and then the subsequent three-day work order then reduced the resources of the inquiry and they wouldn't be able to interview people at work and that sort of thing. They didn't have commercial electricity. So already this huge and in-depth investigation was then being hit with, um, you know, things that were going on in the wider community as well. I'd, I'd heard of those strikes and I'd heard of the subsequent uh, issues they caused. but I So I knew that there were power outages, but I, I just thought it was like sporadic power cuts. I didn't know that it was this kind of um, three-day week order to reduce uh, resources across all businesses and stuff. That's really interesting. Yeah. It was. Um, I was doing some research into it because I found it really fascinating when I was researching this case. And there were things like the blackouts and that side of things as well. Um, it was all just absolute chaos. People just didn't know whether they were coming or going. It was just madness. And I mean, this sounds like a shit time to be alive because not only have you got all that to contend with, you have to spend four quid of your 16 quid weekly wages on a fucking taxi to get home. Yeah. It's madness, isn't it? Really, really yeah. crazy. So the chief superintendent in charge held a press conference in which he appealed to the killer's ref relatives to turn him in and during this he said we are pretty certain he is being shielded by someone could be a woman could be a relative or someone close to him that sunday morning his shoes must have been muddy his clothing could have been bloodstained this man is sick and needs medical attention he could kill again unless we get him to a doctor let the police know about him before he kills again we will look after him and i thought it was a very clever way to encourage someone to give up their potentially their husband or brother or whatever yeah, it's really emotive, isn't it? It's pulling on the heartstrings. And also uh, to say, we will look after him. We all know they yeah. wouldn't have, but... No, not at all. But it's, um, yeah, it's it's trying to ease the guilt someone would feel in, in handing over a relative or a loved one to the police. Um, you'd read that and it would, would tug at you and you would um, you would think, I've got to do the right thing here and it'll be and okay. And I'm helping him as well, not yeah, just helping Yeah, get him the to the doctor, yeah. But no one turned him in. By mid-1974, the murder team was quietly wound down and the investigation was scaled down. Whilst the investigation was wound down, unsolved murders are never officially closed off. And so all the information that was taken, all the statements and the evidence, such as the clothing belonging to Sandra, Geraldine and Pauline, were all boxed up to be stored. The paperwork for the most part was kept at Sandfields Police Station in Port Talbot and the most valuable forensic materials for the girls' underwear was retained in dry storerooms at the Home Office's Forensic Science Labs in Chepstow. Dr Colin Dark of Chepstow-based Forensic Science Services, who came to the case in 1990, said of the decision to store the items separately, 
Much of it went into storage at Sandfields Police Station in Port Talbot, where, because of the damp conditions, it turned to mush. It got very mouldy, and mice had nibbled away at many of the index cards. Luckily, I anticipated the sorts of developments that might happen in DNA research, and so I asked for the girls' underwear to be stored at our labs in Chepstow. The key to cold case work is having material left to work with, you see. As the years went by, the case continued to be reviewed and suspects would be highlighted and questioned, but the case barely progressed. Even in the mid-80s, when DNA testing was good enough to be used in investigations, the science just wasn't quite good enough for this case. So early DNA tests required a fresh sample the size of a 10 pence piece. So blood or semen had to be used and it had to be that much as well, which is quite a large amount to, to extract that DNA profile. Yeah, I mean, I know that wouldn't be the case now, but we're so used to hearing all they need is a tiny droplet of blood or a speck of blood, and that's enough to build a whole profile. But yeah, I I guess it was in its infancy back then. But that is interesting. Yeah. So some stains on a victim's clothing from a decade earlier. It's very frustrating, but they were still no use at this point. Finally, in 1998, a new low-copy number DNA test, so a DNA profiling technique, was developed by the UK Forensic Science Service. So this was a technique that could utilise, like you just said, just a tiny speck of DNA material, and it's now been used ever since 1999. So it basically provides a genetic profile which is expressed as a string of numbers, and then that string of numbers is unique and can be matched to other samples containing the same DNA. So Dr Dark's decision to keep hold of clothing where it couldn't turn to mush like the paperwork did turned out to be absolutely the right one. The clothing belonging to Pauline finally, after two years of work, revealed a full genetic profile of the killer that the police had been hunting. Testing on Sandra's clothes then revealed she'd been a victim of the same killer as Pauline and Geraldine, so officially the three murders could be linked. And so this is the first bit of historical significance. With three murders attributed to him, this was the first serial killer in Wales. Uh, are, we, are we surprised by that? I was a little surprised considering it was the 70s and when you think of America or England there would have already been serial killers but actually it is a smaller country and potentially it shouldn't be as surprising I think America having earlier and more um, you Mm. know more serial killers in numbers shouldn't be that surprising. How about you? Are yeah. you surprised by it? Or I, I am a little bit. Um, but yeah, the population's obviously a lot smaller. It's a lot more spread out uh, geographically. So it kind of makes sense. But yeah, I, I do find that quite surprising. When you think back to England of, you know, Jack the Ripper and all these historic serial killers that we know of. And the Blackout uh, Ripper that we were talking to Mike about um, yeah. during the war, things like that. Yeah, this is 73. Yeah, I just find find it weird that there'd not been at least one or two known cases before that. But uh, no, that's um, yeah, I'd, I'd never have known that. That's really interesting. The case was reopened under the name Operation Magnum, and the team investigating consisted of Detective Chief Inspector Paul Bethel and two near retirement age colleagues of his, Phil Rees and Geraint Bale. Did I say Geraint right? Right, you did yeah, there, Mark. Lovely, because yeah. I didn't say it right for the first million no. times. The trio Shall I leave assembled. It in? No, I don't think you should. Okay, okay. Not the not the first couple. Just me saying it correctly would be lovely. Thank you. 
And the trio assembled in this rundown police station and just basically took on the massive archive of case material, whatever hadn't been nibbled by mice or hadn't gone mouldy. In 2000, the DNA profile was uploaded to the Criminal National DNA Database to see if it matched any person arrested or charged since 1995. So that was the year in which DNA started to be taken from people who were arrested of crimes. I didn't know that either. Oh, this is such a history lesson, isn't it? Yeah, honestly, I'm loving it. I found it it so interesting when I was researching this because of all the history behind it. So frustratingly in this case, however, whilst the NDNAD held over a million profiles, this killer wasn't one of them. There was a feature on BBC's Crime Watch where the Khandasi murders were reconstructed and shown in January 2001. And the small team called on a psychological profiler to support their search for the killer, as well as appealing to the public once again. Um, There was actually media speculation linking serial killer Fred West to the murders because he'd once worked in Clandarcy, but he was quickly ruled out based on the DNA evidence. And I thought that was quite interesting as well. Yeah, but I was going to say, if this is uh, early 2000s, they'd have been able to get a sample of Fred West's DNA to, yeah, get an answer. But as you said, it was ruled out. Yeah, straight away sorted that out. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So initially, the trio of detectives, so already it's just three men, bless them, they had 35,000 persons of interest based on the DNA results. So the psychological profiler then reduced this to a list of 500. So 50 people were witnesses, relatives of the victims, stepfathers, boyfriends, and anyone who had featured prominently in the initial investigation. And then the others were then known criminal suspects. Because it had been almost 30 years since the murders, South Wales Police decided to utilise a tactic that hadn't been done before, so they decided to search for the DNA of possible living descendants of the murderer, because if any individuals were related, their genetic profile would be similar to the one that the police had of the killer. So basically, because 50% of a person's DNA is inherited from each parent, investigators can make a partial match between the killer's profile and that of any children they might have, And so investigators therefore examined local individual profiles that matched part of the killer's profile and then they created a list of 100 potential suspects. So painstaking work then had to continue so they had to look at passport, driving licence and criminal record checks and this led to 353 men, one as far away as New Zealand, being tested. Although all cooperated none of them matched. Now, one of the criminals was a local car thief. His DNA was on file, but he'd only been seven years old at the time of the murders, and his name was Paul Cappen. Now, if his name sounds familiar, good for you, because you were listening carefully. His father, Joseph, a nightclub bouncer from Port Talbot, had actually been a suspect back at the beginning of the investigation. Do you remember me telling you about the man who had the type of Austin the police were looking for, but his car was on bricks? And his wife gave him an alibi? Well, yes. When detectives arrived at his house, Cappen's car was on blocks and the wheels removed. Cappen had claimed that he couldn't have committed the murders because his car was not roadworthy. However, in the days after the killings, Cappen's car was actually logged as being on the road by police that were carrying out stop and check operations. And if only there had been some way of cross-referencing different nuggets of information for the police... Because without this computerised system for cross-referencing, this fact wasn't noticed by detectives at the time, completely understand why, if they'd been able to cross-reference that, they'd have known that actually his car was roadworthy. But also what pisses me off here is 
The police have gone to question him. The car's on bricks and all the wheels are off. But they might have been on on the night of the killing and then taken off the following morning, for example. It doesn't take like 10 days to get your wheels off, does it? No. Does that make sense? It does. It does make sense. And it is frustrating. But Kappen also claimed to have been at Neath Fair on the night of the murders and his wife gave him a false alibi. She would later say that this was something she'd do any time the police investigated her husband, saying, I alibied him, but I always did whenever the police came knocking. You learn to do it without thinking. Oh, on such and such night, he was with me, officer. Now, more on this in a minute. More on this in a minute. Joseph Kappen was number 200 on the list of 353 men that the police investigated, but when detectives arrived at his home, his second wife and widow told them that he had died at the age of 49 in 1990 of lung cancer. So, as well as being discussed initially and then being on a short list of suspects in the second round, police also had his son's DNA which appeared to link him to the murders, so they began to look into Kappen. Kappen, who had been a nightclub doorman, was known to some on the force as a habitual petty criminal with a violent temper. A retired detective said of him, Kappen was a bouncer in nightclubs, he was a man of a violent disposition, a Fagin-like character who sought out boys and girls to commit crimes on his behalf. I first met him at a youth club where he threw a boy down some stairs. There were no injuries, but you felt Kappen was capable of anything, and I knew he had an Austin 1100. Kappen was a nasty man. He was a nasty man, a nasty husband, a nasty father. He was first in trouble with the police at the age of 12 and continued to have run-ins with the police for robbing gas meters, for car thefts, for burglary and assault. He spent years in and out of prison. And outside of jail, he worked as a driver of lorries or driver of buses, as well as a bouncer, but he never really held a job down for long. He was a loner, he liked to be in control, and he liked to be admired or feared. He'd show off to the other blokes around him about the younger women that he slept with, and he reveled in people fearing his size and strength. This this reminds me of Levi Belfield in so many Mm -hmm. ways. That overblown ego, nightclub bouncer. He had three children with his first wife, Christine, and home life was not nice. He raped and abused his wife. But as was the norm at the time, the police didn't get involved in domestic incidents. He chewed tobacco and he smoked 20 old Holborn roll-ups a day, which was enough to stain his teeth and make his clothes smell strongly of cigarette smoke. Gross. Yeah, and I was thinking of the the girls when he's there in the car with them. and I don't know why, but it's just something extra to make him even more disgusting. Yeah, as if it couldn't have been horrific enough it, yeah I, I know what you mean it's i think it's almost an assault on the senses uh yeah, of course an I attack agree. like that would be anyway but that would be so pungent and and so specific yeah it would have just made it feel so real christine later said of their home life before she divorced him in 1980 we lived on the social as a family we did not have two pence to rub together i could not rely on him for money as he was always in and out of jail he did stupid things he'd see some lead pinch it and then get sacked He did not have proper money. If he hobbled, he might give me £20, but that was it. He had a car, which was his luxury. Often he'd take money out of my purse. I thought it was natural for men to hit women. I thought all men were violent. He used to rape me every two weeks and it was against my will. I never wanted it, but he would insist on his conjugal rights. And Kappen ruled his family by terror. I know he's horrible. One of Kappen's hobbies was rearing greyhounds and one of the greyhounds became a family pet. But one day he decided it was too old, 
so he strangled the dog in front of his terrified son. Hmm. Oh, God. I mean, I, I really feel for his first wife, um, you know, just her just thinking that's a normal marriage and that, you know. It's so yeah. sad, isn't it? It really gives you more of an idea of why she did lie, doesn't it? It really kind of encourages you to think that there's more behind this. He um, once sent both of his kids, that they were both under the age of 10 at this time, to just go wander the streets searching to be able to buy some fig roll biscuits because they'd eaten some and he wanted them replaced. This was at 11 at night, pouring with rain. He was just a horrible person to his family. And Kappen's record of assaults on women, so all unknown to the police at the time, but later discovered, began in the early 1960s. In 1964, he attacked a 15-year-old schoolgirl as they were walking together in the Sandfields estate. So they entered a half-built house, he threw her to the ground and jumped on her. But when the girl screamed, he got up and ran away. So she was very lucky there. And in another instance in February 1973, a man who it is now suspected was Kappen, so at the time they gave a, a description and it resembles him, and it was in an Austin, picked up two female hitchhikers near to Neath, took them to an isolated road and attempted to rape them. So both girls tried to escape, but they found that the car doors couldn't open from the inside. Fortunately, the girl in the back had really long nails and she was able to get the stub of the door lock and pull it up. The occupants of a nearby house turned on their lights and the attacker fled. But the sad thing with this one is that the double attempted rape was never reported because one of the girls thought she'd get into trouble with her dad. And that attack in 1964 on the 15-year-old schoolgirl, mm-hmm. that that must have been one, if not the first attack that he committed because it was so... Um, I can't think of the word, but sort of amateur, really. You could yeah, see that he was... I totally uh, agree. Over the years, he built up to having that huge amount of control that he can exercise over two women uh, to to take in turns to rape them and, and force them to dress themselves afterwards and then kill one while the other runs away and then run after her and kill her as well. It's really escalated in terms of uh, his approach to it. He, he's kind of, for want of a better way of explaining it, he kind of got good at it. Yeah, he's definitely worked on his approach and his attacks and has escalated, definitely. So the police's next move in Operation Magnum was a shocking one and one that is our other very historical moment. So they applied to Home Secretary David Blunkett to exhume the body of Joseph Kappen. So to be able to prove that this was definitely him and close the case, they needed his DNA. How else Which are you going to get it? You've, yeah, you've got to do it. And yeah, he sounds like an absolute horrible guy anyway. So you you wouldn't feel bad about exhuming his body, even if it didn't turn out to be... Uh, that it was him. So in scenes that resembled a horror film, poetically, like the horror his victims must have felt in those nights, in May 2002, under heavy rain and a thunderstorm, Kappen's coffin was exhumed, which is just bizarre, isn't it, that it's May, but there's heavy rain, thunderstorm, It's it is so poetic. I just find exhumation so weird and of course they're weird they're they're like so wrong in so many ways and it was the right thing to do here but it's yeah it's just such a it weird feels wrong it does and it, and that yeah they always do them at night as well they always do them at night and they have to follow very specific procedures around lots of the kind of religious stuff as well whether the person was religious or not yeah it's uh just fascinating 
So following a long day of digging, eventually the coffin was slowly brought to the surface. DNA taken from the body's femur and teeth proved to be a full match. And Dr. Dark said, after all those years of questions, suppositions and heartache for the girl's family, we'd got our man at last. So Wells's very first documented serial killer, the Saturday Night Strangler, as he was known in the media, was finally unmasked, bringing to a close one of the longest running murder hunts in Wales's history. Geraldine's mum said, you know there are evils out there but you never believe it will touch on you and yours. When it does it's a lifetime sentence of hell. Now we can close the book on that hell forever. So something I wanted to note before we close this episode is that the police are not just leaving this case here. It's been proven and we've talked about it a number of times that serial rapists and serial killers don't just stop for the most part. It's highly unlikely to have a case like this where a killer attacks twice with three victims and then just continues his life without another attack. Nothing before, nothing after. And just to get it right in my head, that was in 1973 and six weeks apart. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, what are they saying? Well, they're not, but it's impossible to conceive that he just went on this rape and killing spree. There were three victims and it, it just took place over a six week period uh, in, in his life when he went on to live for another 16, 17 years. Detective Chief Inspector Paul Bethel of Operation Magnum Team said, I can't believe that if an offender is impulsive enough to pick up victims in his locality, risking being seen, that he would have any qualms about committing other offences around the country or abroad. There have to be other rapes or unsolved murders that could be attributed to him. So with the police believing that there have to be other rapes or unsolved murders attributed to him, Cappin's picture has been circulated to every police force in Britain and every six weeks his DNA profile has run against any new cold cases on the NDNAD. The hunt for potential victims is still going on and I thought that's amazing because that's something I was thinking this whole time is what if there's others and they're constantly and consistently checking if he's responsible for any other cases. What I find weird is it's almost like his memory is still being kept alive. Someone in some lab every six weeks or wherever is like doing a check Having on to his... think about him. Yeah, yeah. I, I, know, I know there's lots of serial killers that we talk about all the time, like Jack the Ripper and stuff. They go on to have this kind of legendary status and they become infamous. But it, this is almost worse because we don't really know if his name is not infamous, but it just bothers me a bit that... I, I understand why they're doing it. I just find it a bit weird, isn't it, to think that he's almost seen as that important that his DNA is being reviewed every six weeks. And how long is that going to go on for? Is that going to go on for another 50 years, 60 years, 70 years? When when will it stop? But I understand why. I do get what you're saying. I, I do. Maybe like it's almost like reframing it as in like he's not important enough but the other victims are important enough to potentially have to drag up this horrible man's memory every six weeks. Maybe it's kind of reframing it in your mind as rather than it's horrible and annoying that he's being remembered. It's actually, he's just a tool to potentially solving some other family's heartache. I'll, uh, I'll take that one to my therapist and see if I can work <laughs> on reframing it. I need some help. So there we go, guys. Thank you so much for joining us once again this week. And thank you, Mark, for joining me for a a case where I hopefully taught you a little bit of history, which I found fascinating to learn for myself. So I enjoyed imparting that knowledge. 
Yep, I've learned some things there. I loved it. Uh, thank you. Yeah, fascinating case. Never heard of him. And really interesting to go and visit uh, Wales's first known serial killer. So thank, thank you. you very much, Amanda, once again. Yeah. Sorry for calling you Amanda at the beginning of taking the mic, but, you know, we like to. Um, thank you very much, Amanda, for your suggestion. Patreon, Amanda. Yeah, Patreon Amanda. Uh, if you would like to be a Patreon Amanda, then just head over to patreon.com slash seeing red. And uh, we will be back next Wednesday with another case. So we will see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.